So you might be wondering, um, as we're going through the season of Advent and we're preaching through the first chapter of the book of John, uh, you might be wondering why. Um, you know, where's my Luke chapter two? You know, you probably you're thinking, where's my where's my manger and my star? Where's my cattle lowing and uh, where's the sheep? Where's the wise men? Where's Mary in her perfect little blue pristine outfit? And where's where's my baby Jesus? My my little eight pounds six ounce. Look, just looking at his baby Einstein developmental videos, learning about shapes and colors. You know why on earth are we reading through the Gospel of John for Advent? Uh, you know, what, Matthew or Luke wasn't good enough for us? Uh, or on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you might be asking why we celebrate the birth of Jesus in December at all. You know, I, I, there are, I have such a range of friends on Facebook, but I always have this handful that, that every December feel like it's their mission to make sure that everybody knows that Jesus was not really born in December, or, or probably not. Because the fact is, we have no idea when he was born. Um, people try to do fancy maths or try to figure out, well, how many months was it after Zechariah got his message and then Elizabeth was pregnant for how long and then Mary was pregnant. And you're trying, and, but there's just not enough to anchor any of that. Um, we don't know when Jesus was born. Uh, the gospel writers didn't think it was important, and it's probably not important. Um, but why do we, then do we, just, uh, do we celebrate it in December? Why December the 25th? Well, I think it has something to do, the answer to these questions are related, and it has something to do with what this passage is about. This passage is about Jesus being the light of the world, and the light of the world um, coming into the world. And this time of year, um, especially the farther north you live, the more you might be longing for some light. The more the, the natural cycle of, of the sun and the moon and the stars makes this time of year feel really dark. Um, you know, it's, what is it, 12, 15 right now, something like that, 11, 15. Uh, and, you know, it kind of feels like by the time we're out of here, we're going to have about 20 minutes of light left before it starts to, the sun starts to go down. Um, the world gets pretty dark in December. And December the 25th, you know, the Julian calendar and the, the, you know, it's, the dates have floated around a little bit, but it's pretty close to the winter solstice, to the darkest day of the whole year, to the day in which it feels like the sun is the farthest away and things are the most bleak and the most cold. And that is the situation the human race is in when Jesus is born. That our uh, natural cycle of the sun uh, gives us this picture of, uh, of what it feels like to be longing uh, for our Savior, to be longing for somebody to come uh, into this mess and make it right, to shine some light on this. You know, the way that I feel at 4 p.m. at the end of December when it's dark out um, is the way that we all feel, uh, trapped in our sins, trapped in our corrupt systems, trapped in our... Uh, bleak, self-destructive patterns. Um, we're looking for some light. We need to be rescued. And this passage, uh, John calls Jesus that light. Now, last week, um, 
the passage referred to Jesus as the Logos. And Logan um, talked about how that was this uh, sort of highfalutin philosophical term at the time, uh, at the time in Greek philosophy, uh, that it referred pretty specifically to this, this sort of philosophical first principle that causes all other uncaused causes. Um, and at the same time that, that John is pointing to Jesus and saying that Jesus is that logos, that first principle, Jesus is the answer to our loftiest intellectual pursuits and our loftiest intellectual questions. He's also the answer to our deepest, most primal fear, the fear of darkness. Um, and to really appreciate that, I think that it's, it's tough for us where we have electric lights to really uh, connect with the way that our ancestors related to light and darkness. Uh, and if you watch uh, you know, any kind of post-apocalyptic movies or TV shows or read any of those books, you can maybe start to imagine what it would be like. But even there, like, it seems like everybody can always see each other really well. Um, but try to imagine what it would be like to live in a village of maybe 100, 200 people, which would have been a pretty big village. Um, and you don't have a, a wall. Uh, you have your farmland, and at the edge of your farmland, there is woods. And on a night after the sun goes down, when there is no moon, and there are clouds covering the stars, you cannot see. And you hear noise in the woods. Uh, everything has to put you on alert. You have, to, you have to have people up all night watching. Uh, you have to be on guard. Uh, you have to be worried about what is out there in that darkness. Uh, and John is telling us that Jesus is, he says, the true light. At the same time that he is the answer to our loftiest intellectual questions, he is the answer to our deepest and most primal most animal fears. And this passage continues to be really dense, really theologically rich. Uh, we could, but I feel a little bit like uh, Inigo Montoya again. Going, Let me explain. There is too much. Let me sum up. Because we could spend hours upon hours um, just wading through, just dipping our toes into everything that's available to us in this passage uh, and in this chapter. But we can't do it. Because, and what, but what's great What's great is that at the same time that we could spend hours or even years unpacking everything that's here, the message that John is bringing to us is very simple and direct. Uh, that after we have parsed all of the verbs and after we have examined all of the ancient philosophy, what John is trying to tell us is this. Jesus, the true light, cannot be overcome by our ignorance nor even by our evil. Instead, he overcomes us. He drives ignorance and evil from us, and he gives us life. Very simple, very direct. Jesus is the true light, and even our ignorance and evil cannot overcome him, but rather his light overcomes our darkness, and he gives us life. So, some of what is going on here, I think to, 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 to feel the force of what John is, is saying to us, um, Let's look first at sort of deliberate ambiguity that he's putting in here. So if you look at verse 4 and 5, 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you were a, uh, a Greek living in the first century, um, or if you were a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, um, and you read that, there wouldn't be any real surprises there for you. Even, even a, a non-Christian, non-Jewish Greek would get and would, would appreciate the statement um, that in the Logos, the Logos, this uh, high first principle, contained life within it, and life came from it. That would be no trouble. Um, and it wouldn't be any trouble to say um, that that life was the light of men. And it wouldn't be any trouble to say that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You would think, because he, he started by saying, in the beginning was the word, you would think he's talking about the creation of the world, especially if you were a Hellenistic Jew. You'd be thinking about Genesis chapter 1. The logos, right? Remember that that means word. The first thing that happens in the, in the book of Genesis is that God says something. So it makes perfect sense to you to think that the first thing that exists is the word of God. God speaks. And what the first thing that he says is let there be light. And so if you are that Hellenistic Jew, there will be no problem at all for you to go, ah, oh, he's talking, he's, he's meditating upon Genesis 1. He's, he's reminding us that God spoke the world into existence, that he spoke and light existed, uh, and then he uh, created life. He brought the universe itself to life in a sense. Uh, because that's what that word life means there. It doesn't, it's not like biological life. It's uh, animated life. It's uh, vitality. And there's a, I mean, it's not a, it's not a surprise, or it shouldn't be a surprise, that, that religions from all over the world, even without any contact with, uh, with Judaism or Christianity, have had this idea that there's something alive in the universe, and they have, they have personified it and even worshipped it. Um, the universe is infused with life, and John is telling us, and meditating on Genesis 1, that, the, that this life comes from God as he spoke it into existence. Um, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, if you you know if you were aware of the way physics work, this would make perfect sense to you. Uh, darkness doesn't exist. Darkness isn't isn't a thing. Darkness is just where light is not. And so, one beam of light penetrates the darkness. Uh, darkness is is obliterated by any amount of light. Light shines in the darkness, and darkness does not overcome it. That's how it works. That's how light functions in the physical world. So if you're a, you know, a Greek-speaking Jew or you're Greek and you're listening to this, you're thinking, this is making intellectual sense to me. He's talking about creation. He's talking about... But then John seems to expect us, actually, to read this book twice. Because at the same time that the first time you read it, this passage, you think he's talking about physical light. He's talking about the creation of the world. This next time through, after you'd read the whole book, you would have already read Jesus saying things like, I am the light of the world. Um, you would have read Jesus saying things uh, like, uh, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John, equates light with goodness and darkness with evil. And... Boy, boy, there's some philosophical stuff to think about there, isn't there? Is does evil uh, have non-existence the same way that darkness does? Is evil only the absence of goodness? 
the way that darkness is only the absence of light. So the second time you come back to this, if you after you'd read the whole book of John and you came back to this, you would realize immediately that what John is saying here is that not, not simply is this about the creation of the world, uh, but this is about um, the moral fabric of the universe. That he's claiming that Jesus uh, is the source of all goodness. And of not just of, of, of living life, but of spiritual life, of uh, eternal life. And that pattern continues throughout this chapter and throughout this passage. Um, you know, we can say the same thing about the, when he talks about the world. At first you would think he's talking about the creation of the physical universe. But then after you've read the book of John the first time, you're going to be aware of Jesus saying things uh, about the world and how... Uh, you know, John 15, 19, Jesus is going to say, whoever does what is true comes to the light um, so that it may be clearly seen that his works uh, have, have been uh, carried out in God. Uh, and he's going to be talking about the, the world as a place of evil. The world as the created order that is in rebellion against God. So by the time you come back to John 1 again, that's what you're going to be thinking about when he starts talking about the world, the cosmos. So John really wants us to be seeing both of these meanings at the same time. And the message here is that Jesus is inaugurating a new creation. By harking back to Genesis 1 so clearly and making you, you the Jewish Greek-speaking reader, think, oh, he's talking about Genesis 1. But there's something else happening here, too. He's talking about a new kind of life. He's talking about the world in a different way. He's talking about life in a different way. Jesus is creating a new world, in a sense. There is a new creation happening. That's the claim here. The simple claim is that Jesus' life, in the original creation, that life brought the universe itself to life, and every living thing to life. But in the new creation, Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is light. In the original creation, he's the cause of all of the light that comes into the world. Um, and in the new creation, he is uh, moral goodness and brings understanding. Jesus is the creator of the world. In the original creation, Jesus formed the world, but it rebelled. And in the new creation, Jesus is the savior of that rebellious world. So Jesus uh, is the inaugurator of the first creation, and John is making the audacious claim that he is now uh, inaugurating a new creation. You know, in addition to that, John is saying this. Jesus, the life and light of the world, is not overcome, but he overcomes. Now, there's something really um, linguistically interesting happening in this passage that I, uh, I, I, I struggle to, to convey. Um, so I'm going to, I hate to do this, I'm going to have to talk to you about Greek words. So, uh, in verse 5, when it says the darkness has not overcome the light. The Greek verb, to literally translate the, the pieces of it, because it's like a verb with a preposition attached to it, it would be like saying the light, uh, the darkness does not against receive the light. Now what does that mean? Well, it means overcome, or it means understand. But, but the word receive is in the middle of it. So that when a few verses later when he says... 
He came to his own, his own really means like his own place, his own home. He came to his home. He came to his own. But his, the people that were there, his own people, did not receive him. Uh, it's along the same lines as what the darkness couldn't do to the light. The darkness couldn't against receive the light, and his own people didn't kind of alongside receive the light. They weren't in any way able to receive the light. But then he says, but to, to those who did receive him, and then he uses the verb simply and directly there, to as many as did receive him, he gave, he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those, he says, who believed in his name. So what darkness cannot do to light, what darkness cannot do to light, is the opposite of what we are called to do with Jesus. We are called to receive him in the way that the darkness cannot overcome the world. We are given the right and the power to receive him, and that gives us the right to become children of God, the way that Adam and Eve were God's, in a sense, first children. We become his children through this receiving of Jesus. Okay? That's the audacious thing that John is saying. He says that receiving him is the same thing as, he says, believing in his name. Now I want to be very quick here to say that believing in his name, there's nothing intellectual implied here. This, is, this, this having faith in his name is not talking about intellectual assent to the truths of Christianity. Um, it's not saying, well, I choose to believe that Christianity is true, even though I have no evidence for it. I would suggest that we do have plenty of evidence for it. I would be happy to wrestle through that with you if you're wondering about it. Um, but this believing in his name, this is, is receiving him. This is, you know, it, it's a lot like, it's a bit like getting married. Um, when Catherine and I got married, she started calling herself by my last name. Right? As, a, as this signal that she... Maybe against, maybe against all wisdom, uh, fully received me, fully accepted me, and aligned herself with me, connected herself with me. Uh, we believe in His name. We receive His name. We receive Him. It might be even more like being born as somebody else's child. I think that. That's, it's strange. I think that that's an offensive concept to Americans. That when you're born, you don't get to decide who your parents are. And you don't get to decide what they name you. You don't get to decide anything about it. But you're born uh, the child of your parents. And they name you. And they give you a name that is yours. And they give you their own name along with it. And you receive that. Um, you by default, you, without being able to help it, believe in that name. Um, your parents are your parents, whether you wanted it or not. Um, and I think that's uh, what uh, what John is beginning to get at when later he says that this does not happen. We're not born by the will of man. We're not born by blood the way the natural childbirth happens. That's not how, we're, how we become the children of God. But it is by the will of God. We become his children, not because of what we have done, not because of our choice, any more than my children chose to be my children. 
Um, we become God's children because he chooses to make us his children. Okay. Now this promise, now we're ready. Now we're ready to hear the promise that the darkness does not overcome the light. The promise that the darkness will not overcome the light uh, is going to be very important later in this book. Um, The next thing I'm going to say, um, you are probably, you have had a conversation with me. There's a decent chance that you're going to think I'm talking about you um, and you alone, that I kind of wrote this sermon for you. But it's not true because practically anybody in the room um, could think that about themselves. So here it is that you may feel like your sin is winning, you may feel like evil inside you is winning. You may feel like darkness is winning in yourself. You may feel like it's winning in the world around you. I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe everybody, maybe every generation feels this way, but I, I feel like, like the last uh, few years, the last few months, the last few weeks even, I just feel like the, the conflict and blaming of othering and othering of other people um, it's just it's just reaching this frenetic tone where my Republican friends on Facebook are, are screaming at Democrats and Democrats uh, on my Facebook feed are screaming at Republicans and moderates are screaming at everybody for not being more moderate. Everybody else is the problem. If you're a Democrat, Republicans are the problem. If you're a Republican, Democrats are your problem. And if you're a moderate, immoderate people on both sides are the problem. So like even being a moderate doesn't save you. And it just seems like it's just getting worse and worse. And you feel like the darkness is winning. You feel like, like light is being choked out. And John wants to remind us that darkness ain't a thing. Darkness ain't a thing. Darkness can't beat light. It cannot. Evil cannot conquer good. It cannot. By its very existence, light penetrates darkness, and darkness flees from it. Darkness is destroyed by the presence of light. He is promising that as Jesus comes into the world, all darkness is being chased away by him. You might feel different. I put the quotation on the screen this morning um, from a show called True Detective. If you have not seen that, I do not recommend you watch it. Uh, it is dark and twisted. So unless you really like really dark and twisted things, don't bother. But uh, the scene that I quoted is uh, stunningly beautiful, maybe because everything around it is so dark and twisted. But the two characters are talking about the stars. And the one character who is really the most nihilistic, and I mean, he, like he says, he talks to them throughout the show, but like, look, we're just, we're just animals, we shouldn't even be intellectuals. Like, the right thing for the human race, he says, the right thing for the human race would be to stop breeding, because material objects shouldn't be self-aware. Evolution went wrong in us. Um, only strength matters. The only reason I keep getting out of bed in the morning is because my... 
biochemistry has programmed me to do. That's who. That's kind of who this guy is when the show starts. And it's, I mean, if you're a materialist, if you're not, if you don't have any religious belief, I don't really know how you argue with him. Uh, if you have a way, I would love to hear it. Um, let's talk. Let's have coffee. You can explain to me why he's wrong. Um, by the time the scene that we quoted update is over, they're talking about the stars. They're talking about light and darkness. And the, this one character, Rust is his name, who's so nihilistic, um, says that when he was a kid in Alaska, he used to look up at the stars and make up stories about them. And the other character asks him, what were those stories? What were those stories? And he says, he says you know, I've been in this hospital bed for weeks looking out this window, and I realized I think it's only one story. And that story is light against dark. The other character looks up at the up at the sky and says, "Don't look so good, but it looks like the darkness has a lot more territory." And you look at these pinpricks of light in the sky that's entirely dark otherwise. Uh, and Rust says, "You're looking at it wrong." This is the guy who at the beginning was so nihilistic. He says, "You're looking at it wrong," because you got to remember that when we started, all there was was dark. The lights went. say, I think that Rust is not giving the full force of his own argument. Because the full force of it would be that in fact, the light has all the territory. And you look up at that sky, and the light that's shining from each of those stars fills the whole universe. The photons are everywhere. Light is everywhere. Light emanating from one star goes everywhere. And there are billions of them. Light coming from one Jesus, the true light coming into the world, goes everywhere. He shines on us like little moons that reflect it. And his light goes everywhere. And John's promise here is that despite what it feels like, despite when we look up at the stars and it, it looks like the darkness is winning, the darkness is winning, he's telling us that it's not true. Don't believe that. The darkness is not winning. The light is going everywhere. The light shines into darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. Now, that promise is going to become really, really important by the time this book is over. Because this light that's come into the world, there's going to be a moment when it looks as if the light has been overcome. There's going to be a moment near the end of this story when it looks as if darkness has swallowed it up. When it looks as if darkness has been penetrated so deeply that the light has been snuffed out by it. It's going to look like the flesh, the word made flesh, the light made flesh. Um, as it's going to be flayed and broken. That flesh is going to be nailed to a Roman cross and it's going to be drained of all life. The true life and the true light into the world are going to be snuffed out and killed. Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to die. He will be buried. And the light of the world will be dark. The life of the world will be dead. Night will fall. Another morning will dawn and he will still be dead. And then night will fall again and he will still be dead.
promise that John makes here is that he made a good truth. That the darkness cannot, even then, overcome that light. The life of the world will live again. He will be raised from the dead, and he will give his life to us. Now, if you know that that is true, if you know that that is true, that even the light of the world itself is snuffed out in a a whisper of smoke, then you know that nothing can ever harm you will know that no evil, no sin, no fear, even your own wickedness, even your own sin, is powerless over you. If you know that this is true, no matter how much of your money you give away or lose, no matter how many friends you lose, no matter uh, how frequently or how deeply you are put into prison, no matter how Anyone may threaten your life or even take it away. You will always know that darkness cannot overcome the light. The power that brought Jesus back from the dead will be with you too. You will be a reflection of that light that that the darkest darkness was not able to overcome even when things were at their bleakest. And it will be with you. Rather, no matter how badly you sin, no matter how dark and evil your own soul is, the light of Christ is going to overcome even you. Even your darkness cannot snuff out the light of the world. Death itself couldn't snuff it out, and you can't either. You and your sin cannot overcome him. He will overcome you. As surely as December turns to April, the light comes. The light will always overcome the darkness. And as surely as there are uh, bread and wine for us here today, uh, the light of the world has become flesh. The light of the world became tangible and visible. The true light, the true light. And he gives himself for us. And we can eat and drink the light of the world. And he will nourish us for eternal life. For the creation remade without sin, without evil, darkness in it.